Hey y'all, it's Julie Cully with History and Murders of Wichita Falls. Today's episode is a little long and there's a lot of information that I'm not going to be talking about today. Uh, it can be found in my book, How Did They Die? Murders of Northern Texas, 1892 to 1927. If you live in Wichita Falls at the end of this podcast, I will tell you where you can find them. If you do not live in the area, you can get them on Amazon. Just search my name. Um, the cover of this book is the Black Book. So, um, like I said, it's it's uh, there's a lot of information I'm not including just to kind of shorten it up a little bit. So, let's get started. It was just another normal day in the little town of Cisco, Texas, in Eastland County on December 23rd, 1927. There were only two days left until Christmas, and the little town was bustling with people conducting normal business and with ladies, men, and children doing their last-minute Christmas shopping. Hundreds of people were crowding the streets, and children were playing, waiting for the big day when Santa Claus would come to visit them. Everyone was completely unaware that Santa Claus... It was just another normal day in the little town of Cisco, Texas, in Eastland County on December 23, 1927. There were only two days left until Christmas, and the little town was bustling with people conducting normal business and with ladies, men, and children doing their last-minute Christmas shopping. Hundreds of people were crowding the streets, and children were playing, waiting for the big day when Santa Claus would come to visit them. Everyone was completely unaware that Santa Claus was about to commit one of the most infamous and deadly bank robberies in Texas history. Outside of the First National Bank of Cisco at about 12.15 in the afternoon, an automobile pulled up and Santa stepped out of the vehicle. Children cooed and went running to talk to Santa. Santa had to get to the bank and was terribly bothered by the children gathering around him. After getting rid of his in innocent and faithful followers, he finally made it into the bank to take care of his business. But little Laverne Comer, age 12, and little Mae Robinson, age 10, had also followed Santa Claus into the bank, excited to see him and tell him what they wanted for Christmas. Suddenly, three other men who had come with Santa and were now behind him raised their guns and yelled, Grab some sky! The three men kept their guns on everyone in the bank while Santa Claus went through the president's office and into the cashier area where he opened a drawer in the cashier's cage and found a revolver. He stuck the revolver under his Santa suit. He then searched the people in the bank and ordered bank teller Jewel Poe to open the safe. When Poe opened the safe, Santa took several large potato sacks that he had brought with him and filled the sacks with $12,200 and bonds. Just as the bandits had entered the bank, a woman customer saw them, and unknown to the robbers, she slipped out a side door to alert authorities. The police arrived outside 
while the men were collecting all of the money from the bank. Being aware that the bank was being surrounded, the bandits grabbed everyone in the bank and forced them to go outside with them, hoping that they could make a clean getaway with hostages shielding them. But as they stepped out of the bank, the shooting began. Shots rang out from everywhere, and when the shooting was over, veteran police chief George Bedford was dead. George Carmichael, a police officer, was seriously wounded, and hopes of his pulling through were very slim. And Lewis Davis, one of the bank robbers who was buried in Riverside Cemetery in Wichita Falls, was also fatally wounded while trying to make his escape to a second getaway car. He was transported to Fort Worth in fear of mob lynching, and he died of his gunshot wound on Christmas Eve. The others who were wounded were Sheriff W.G. Abernathy of Palo Pinto, who was accidentally shot through the right hand, Marion Olson, 22, who was a Harvard student, home for Christmas, who was accidentally shot through his body by a citizen who was trying to shoot the robbers. He was forced into the getaway car and later got out and refused to go with the robbers. Pete Rutherford, 28, was shot through the thigh. Brady Boggs, 33, was shot through the leg. R.L. Day had a scalp wound. And Alex Spears, the cashier of the First National Bank and one of the initial hostages, was shot through the jaw. Using the two little girls, Laverne Comer and, and Emma Mae Robinson, as a shield, the robbers managed to get to their waiting automobile amongst hundreds of shots being fired, taking the little girls along with them. A short time later, the car went about half a mile before it got a flat tire, and the robbers had to devise another plan. Forced to abandon their disabled auto, they ordered the two girls to throw out the sack of money, which contained $12,000 in cash and $150,000 in non-negotiable securities. The girls threw out two sacks, but did not throw out the sack containing the cash. And in their haste, the bandits failed to inspect the sacks to be sure that the money was there. The men commandeered another car driven by Woodrow Harris, age 14, of Rising Star. The bandits transferred the wounded Lewis Davis to the car along with the sacks of money, but the quit thinking Woodrow Harris locked the ignition and took the keys from the car when he was forced to get out. Not being able to start the car and with the authorities fast approaching, they set out on foot to make their getaway. They told the two young girls to lie at the bottom of the car while they disappeared but the girls took a peek anyway, and they were able to tell officers which way the bandits ran. The manhunt began. Posses were formed, and hundreds of volunteers gathered to search for the bank robbers. They did not find the men on the night of the robbery, and a posse was again formed on Christmas Eve. A suitcase and a pile of bloody cotton and rags was found several miles south of Cisco, on the Irvin Finley Farm, just off the Rising Star Road, giving the authorities reason to believe that they were again hot on the trail of the three remaining bank robbers. Finding the bloody rags alerted them to the fact that at least one of the robbers was wounded in the gun battle at the bank. On Monday, December 26th, Archer and Wichita County officers joined the search 
and at 3 o'clock, they were preparing to leave for the Howell Ranch, which was 10 miles south of McGargle in Archer County, Texas, where it was thought that the three suspects had been surrounded, according to Sheriff W.G. Braley. Braley had received a phone call from R.C. Wiley advising him that three robbers had him up, held him, excuse me, held him up, taken his Dodge Touring car and fled. A Dodge Touring car was stopped in Wichita County and three people were arrested. And even though one of them was said to have been a distant cousin of Lewis Davis, the robber who was shot and killed at the bank robbery scene, they were later cleared and released. The three occupants were heading to the home of Mrs. Sam Fox of Moran in Shackleford County, a sister of Lewis Davis, to pick her up and take her back to Wichita Falls, where Lewis Davis would be buried. One of the occupants of the auto, auto was said to have been a doctor from Wichita Falls, and he was carrying a medical case. He was later identified as Dr. John T. Vick, and one of his companions was identified as Mrs. Essie Thornton, widow of Chester Thornton. It was thought that Dr. Vick had been discreetly summoned to dress the wounds of the injured bank robbers. Following up on the stolen vehicle, R.C. Wiley told the officers that he'd been awakened by the robbers and was told that two women had been injured in an automobile accident nearby. They needed a car to transport the, transport the two women to the hospital. The farmer told them that his son Carl had left a short time before in their auto to take relatives who had been visiting for Christmas to the train station. But as soon as the son returned, they could borrow the car to take care of the injured women. When the son did return, they forced the boy to drive them away from the farm, and it was discovered at that time that the story of the injured women was just a ruse to secure a getaway car. Seeing that his son was being kidnapped by the robbers, R.C. Wiley opened fire on the auto as it was making its getaway. Carl told the authorities they kept him with them as they drove all over the country on December 26th. He said that two of the robbers were wounded, one in the arm and the other in the leg. That evening, they stayed in a pasture about eight miles north of Cisco, and they nearly froze to death because it was so cold. On the morning of December 27th, they drove into the city, and one of the robbers scouted around until he found a Ford Touring car without curtains, and they all transferred to that car and left Carl with his. Carl then drove straight to town to report what happened. Carl, who was shot in the right arm, was not hurt by the robbers, but instead shot by his own father while the robbers were fleeing the Wiley farm. On December 27th, more than 100 officers, including the Texas Rangers and a posse of citizens, began to close in on the bank robbers in a wooded canyon between South Bend and Oil City near Graham, Young County, Texas. Captain Tom Hickman and Sergeant N.W. Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers left Wichita Falls in a high-powered auto-equipped with a machine gun to assist in the hunt for the men. The three robbers drove into South Bend between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. that morning with a flat tire on their stolen car. Abandoning their car on the main street of South Bend, they hid in an oil rig. 
Roy McLaren, a Breckenridge Jenner, saw the robbers and fired shots at them, wounding one of the robbers with a shotgun to the leg and the arm. The officers took six guns off of his body. With his identity unknown at the time, the robber was taken to the Graham Hospital and later removed to the jail where he remained unconscious or was faking unconsciousness. Sheriff W.G. Braley and Deputy Sheriff Warren Belcher of Wichita County said that they thought they knew who he was and that they thought he was under indictment for robbery with a firearm in connection with the robbery of a Negro drugstore on Lake Street in Wichita Falls. The robber had on a cap with the name of a Wichita Falls clothing store, and his suit bore the name of a Wichita Falls cleaners. Officers did not know at the time if he was the man who was dressed as Santa Claus, but they suspected that he was due to a gunshot wound in his jaw. As this man was removed from the scene, the other two robbers escaped, but one of them was again shot in the right hand. He dropped a bloody pistol on the floor of the pump station as he fled. On the same day, four relatives of Lewis Davis were arrested in Wichita Falls and brought to Eastland County for questioning. Mrs. Minnie Fox, sister of Lewis Davis, her two sons, Chester and Roy Duffield, and a wife of one of the Duffield sons were taken into custody. They were kept in jail, waiting to be questioned, but they were never charged with any crime. Mrs. Fox admitted that two of the robbers stayed at her house after the robbery to have their wounds dressed. Minnie Fox gave a voluntary statement on December 8th while her husband was being held in jail at Albany as an accessory after the fact. She said that she had never intended on helping the wounded men, but they were cold and hungry and tired. They begged her for her help. Some coffee and something to eat is all that they wanted, so she relented and gave it to them. She dressed the wound of one of the men who was bleeding profusely. After she fed them, she said that she gave them some chicken sandwiches and other things, and they left. She also stated that Friday morning, the morning of the bank robbery, between 2 and 3 a.m., her brother Louis Davis knocked on her door and awakened her husband, Sam. He asked if he could stay there for the rest of the night, and Sam allowed him to in a tent that was on their property. He told Sam Fox that there were two other men with him, one of which was Henry Helms. Sam refused to allow the other men to stay on their oil lease, so many said that they stayed somewhere nearby. She did not see her brother until Friday morning when she was cooking breakfast. She said that on the same morning, she drove to the train station to meet her son Chester and his wife, and it was at this time that a strange woman approached her and told her that the First National Bank of Cisco had been robbed. She went back home immediately after hearing the news, and she was told by Uncle Mike Gilbert that her brother had been seriously wounded while committing the robbery, and she and her husband went to Cisco to see her brother. Positive identification was finally obtained on the wounded bank robber that had been captured. R.L. Wilson, Cisco police officer, walked into the Young County Jail and exclaimed, That's Marshall Ratliff. I've known him for many years. 
Wilson said that Ratliff was a blonde. This man had black dyed hair, but that he would know Ratliff anywhere. Ratliff's brother Lee was also arrested for a burglary that he committed in Corpus Christi a few weeks before. On December 30th, two strangers approached Sidney Hearns, a Graham filling station operator, and asked him for directions to the nearest rooming house. Hearn recognized one of the men to be Henry Helms. He immediately called authorities and City Marshal Jim Davis, Deputy Sheriff E.G. Williams of Graham, and E.H. Little Comanche County Deputy of Comanche responded to the urgent call. The two robbers made one last feeble attempt to escape, but they were soon overtaken and arrested. Gentry Williams asked them, why did you run? And they replied that they figured that they were going to be killed anyway because of the reward out for them, and they would just as well be killed running as with their hands up. The men were identified by Tom Hickman as Henry Helms and Robert Hill, alias Bobby Ketcher who was sent up from Eastland County several years before and had served his sentence. Hickman said that the two men were literally riddled with bullets, and it was a wonder that with some wounds that were a week old, that they were able to continue their flight as long as they did. During the entire search for the bank robbers since December 23rd and the final capture of all four of the men, another crime scene had been playing out in Wichita Falls. W.G. Braley had admitted that for the past month, the Francis and Josephine Heron home, which was located about three miles from Wichita Falls on the old Henrietta Highway, had been under surveillance by his men. They felt that many unsavory men had been frequenting the Heron home, and there had been a warrant issued for the arrest of Marshal Ratliff in connection with the bank robbery November 9, 1927, in Bangs, Brown County, Texas. In the Bangs robbery, four bandits stole $9,000 and left behind one penny. One of the robbers locked up four bank employees and three women customers in the bank vault, while another robber leisurely scooped up all of the money into a bag. The third robber stood guard outside of the door of the bank while the fourth waited in the getaway car. The bank employees were able to open the vault from the inside after the robbers left. On December 19th, the Wichita County authorities had received a tip closely guarding the identity of the informant, stating that the stolen bonds from the bank's bank robbery could be found on the Heron property. Immediately after the manhood had ended for the Cisco robbers, W.G. Braley and Sheriff Warren Belcher returned to Wichita Falls and began working on the leads at the Heron home. When the Wichita Falls authorities began the investigation at the Heron home, it was revealed that Joseph Heron was the woman that was being held in the Cisco jail as an accessory. The woman who came to the area because of curiosity, and the same woman who claimed that she went there with Dr. Vic. The Wichita County authorities began digging in the yard of the Heron home and discovered a fruit jar buried in a post hole 
about two feet deep. In the jar were the bonds that were stolen from the Bangs robbery. They had made hundreds of test diggings in the yard before the jar was finally located. The jar was found in the backyard of the house about 70 feet from the home. All of the bonds were wartime issues, ranging in denomination from $35 to $100. And in all, about $3,300 of bonds were recovered. On December 31st, Josephine Heron was again interrogated in Cisco. According to the newspaper report, Mrs. Heron was described as a woman of a slight build, but dressed in mannish attire wearing khaki trousers and booties and a woman's gray coat. Her hair appeared a reddish brown and looked as if it had been dyed. The most surprising admission made by Josephine was that she herself had made the Santa Claus suit that Marshall Ratliff wore during the Cisco bank robbery. She said that she made it for use in her own home on Christmas Day but when Ratliff, Helms, and Robert Hill came to her home the night before the robbery, they asked her for it, and she gave it to them. She said that Ratliff and Hill had boarded at her house, told to do so by Henry Helms, who said she had known for seven or eight years. She said that Lee Ratliff, Marshall's brother, had also boarded with her, and both of the boys went by the names of Bob and Bill Cheney even though she knew what their real names were. On January 1st, 1928, Henry Helms was characterized as the leader of the bandits. He was a man who dominated people by the use of guns and intimidation. According to Frances Heron, who was being held in the Wichita County Jail and begging to be allowed to stay there, he was afraid that they were, there were still others on the loose who intended on doing his family harm. He said that while at the Heron home, Helms would issue an order, and if it wasn't obeyed immediately, Helms would shoot a bullet into the floor at the feet of the one who disobeyed. He explained that his wife brought the men into their home a few weeks before, stating that they needed a place to stay. Francis said that they needed the money, so he allowed the men to board there, but soon after he realized that their arrival brought a reign of terror to his home. Francis Heron said, you can talk about Jesse James and Cole Younger and the other bad men. They didn't hold a candle to Henry Helms. He went on to say when Helms ordered anyone to do anything, they obeyed him right then or took the chance of getting their feet shot off. When he talked, everyone jumped. When the trial began for Helms, many witnesses were cross-examined, including Alex Spears, who gave a detailed account of the event of the day that Santa Claus robbed the First National Bank, even joking that he said, Hello, Santa, when he walked through the door. However, Spears said that he never saw Ratliff fire a revolver, nor did he ever see a revolver in the hands of Ratliff. Jewel Poe testified that he only saw a gun in the hands of Henry Helms, and he was the only one who he saw firing. He said that during that brief time that over 100 shots were fired from all directions. It seemed that no one was actually able to identify Marshall Ratliff, 
Carl Wiley, the 22-year-old who was kidnapped by the bank robbers, did not positively identify Ratliff during questioning. He said that he had seen him before the robbery in Baird and in Cisco, but didn't know him by name. He said that while a prisoner of the robbers, he saw that Ratliff had a fresh wound in his chin and leg. Hill was wounded in the left arm, which was in a sling, and as far as he could tell, Helms was not wounded at all. He stated that while hiding in Brooks Pasture, three miles from Pueblo in Callahan County, that the three men shared two oranges, but did not offer Wiley anything to eat. He described a 25-pound sugar sack that was filled with ammunition and also said that there was a shotgun, a rifle, and a dozen or so pistols. On January 23rd, the state produced a surprise witness. Marion Heron, age 16, the daughter of Francis and Josephine Heron, testified that her mother made the Santa suit and she herself fitted it on Ratliff the night before the bank robbery. She told the court that she was giving her testimony in hopes that her mother would be given mercy. The sanity hearing for Henry Helms began on February 20th, 1928. During this selection of the jury, Helms's four-year-old daughter, Norma, sat on his lap, and his wife and four other children were seated nearby. After much of the same testimony that was brought forth in the Ratliff trial, Henry Helms was sentenced to death on February the 26th, 1928. On August 29th, 1928, a sanity hearing was held for Henry Helms. At this hearing, Helms was unshaven and he gave the appearance of being a wild man. Many times during the hearing, he interrupted the proceedings by bursting out with, ain't gonna sing no more, and I, Captain. Occasionally, it appeared that he was going to rise from his chair, and it took the strength of two guards to keep him quiet. In the courtroom for his sanity hearing were his parents, Mr. and Mrs. J.C. Helms, his brother Sherman, and his wife Nettie, his grandmother, Mrs. Olin Price, and an aunt, Mrs. Thornton. Henry Helms was deemed to be sane, and his execution date was set for September of 1929. On September 6, 1929, at the stroke of midnight, Captain Homer Knighton, assistant warden at the state prison, along with the group of people who were supposed to be witnesses to the execution of Henry Helms, went silently down a long corridor through several locked gates and across the yard to the death chamber. Henry Helms was lying on the floor asleep when the captain and his group arrived to escort him down what was called the one-way corridor. He didn't move until two guards laid their hands on him, and then he began to fight. He described a 25-pound sugar sack that was filled with ammunition and also said that there was a shotgun, a rifle, and a dozen or so pistols. On January 23rd, the state produced a surprise witness. Marion Heron, age 16, the daughter of Francis and Josephine Heron, testified that her mother made the Santa suit 
and she herself fitted it on Ratliff the night before the bank robbery. She told the court that she was giving her testimony in hopes that her mother would be given mercy. The sanity hearing for Henry Helms began on February 20th, 1928. During this selection of the jury, Helms's four-year-old daughter, Norma, sat on his lap, and his wife and four other children were seated nearby. After much of the same testimony that was brought forth in the Ratliff trial, Henry Helms was sentenced to death on February the 26th, 1928. On August 29th, 1928, a sanity hearing was held for Henry Helms. At this hearing, Helms was unshaven and he gave the appearance of being a wild man. Many times during the hearing, he interrupted the proceedings by bursting out with, ain't gonna sing no more, and I, Captain. Occasionally, it appeared that he was going to rise from his chair, and it took the strength of two guards to keep him quiet. In the courtroom for his sanity hearing were his parents, Mr. and Mrs. J.C. Helms, his brother Sherman, and his wife Nettie, his grandmother, Mrs. Olin Price, and an aunt, Mrs. Thornton. Henry Helms was deemed to be sane, and his execution date was set for September of 1929. On September 6, 1929, at the stroke of midnight, Captain Homer Knighton, assistant warden at the state prison, along with the group of people who were supposed to be witnesses to the execution of Henry Helms, went silently down a long corridor through several locked gates and across the yard to the death chamber. Henry Helms was lying on the floor asleep when the captain and his group arrived to escort him down what was called the one-way corridor. He didn't move until two guards laid their hands on him, and then he began to fight. With the strength of a madman, Helms tore himself free from the two guards and ran to the back of his cell. It took four men to contain him and drag him out of his cell. Helms grasped the bars of the cell, but his fingers broke loose, and he was taken kicking and screaming down the corridor and past Marshal Ratliff's cell to the little green door. Helms made one last attempt to free himself from the guards, but his long confinement had weakened him, and he was finally dragged through the door. When he saw the electric chair, he was frightened, and once again he made a feeble attempt to escape. He was placed in the chair where he made one last attempt to escape. His arms were fastened by leather straps where he suddenly became calm. Sergeant H.J. Howard took two or three steps towards the switch, and he pushed the lever down. Three charges were sent through Helms' body, and minutes later, Henry Helms was pronounced dead by the prison doctor. Later that day, a grave was prepared on the grounds of the prison by inmates, and after a short ceremony, Helms was buried on the prison grounds. Family members failed to claim his body, and no one from, fam from his family was present at his burial. Henry Helms was the first white man to die in the electric chair in the state of Texas who had been charged with robbery with a firearm. 
In November of 1929, Marshall Ratliff thought that he might be able to get away with feigning insanity, just like his fellow bank robber attempted to do. He was brought back to Eastland County to be held until a sanity hearing could take place. He faked paralysis and did such a good job at acting that even the jailers thought that he was paralyzed. He had remained practically motionless on his bunk for days, and the prison guards even had to force-feed him. At some point, the guards stopped locking the cell door, knowing that he couldn't move to attempt an escape. On the evening of November 18, 1929, Sheriff Tom Jones and jailer Edward P. Kilborn were making their rounds, serving the prisoners of the jail their dinner. They left the door of Ratliff's cell open while they fed the other prisoners. Suddenly, he stood up and snuck out of his cell and down to the jail office where he found Sheriff Jones' pistol. But the door to the outside was locked and he couldn't escape. He turned around and headed back to the jail where he was met by Sheriff Jones on the steps and he opened fire on him, hitting him once above the heart, once in the stomach, and a third above his knee. He then fired at Kilborn twice, but missed him. Kilborn ran for his keys, but dropped them as he encountered Ratliff again. Kilborn and Ratliff struggled as Kilborn tried to wrench the gun away from him. Kilborn managed to grab the gun from Ratliff, but not before Mary Quaid Kilborn had heard the commotion and grabbed the gun. She was E.P. Kilborn's daughter. She was about to shoot Ratliff, but her father knocked up the barrel. On November 19, 1929, Marshall Ratliff was the victim of what was called a West Texas lynching. Ratliff was dragged from the Eastland County Jail completely nude. He was strung up by a rope to the guard wire of a telephone pole, but the rope broke. And as he lay on the ground, he was heard murmuring, Lord, have mercy and forgive me. While someone was looking for another rope, someone tied a sack around his lower body to cover him up. He was strung up again, and in front of over 1,000 Eastland County residents, he was hanged. He was pronounced dead by his unofficial executioners at 9.18 p.m. The robber's body hung from the rope for 15 minutes until Justice of the Peace Jim Steele ordered that it be removed. His body was then taken to a nearby store where it was laid so that the mass amount of people who had come to town to witness the hanging could go by and gawk at the dead man. It was said that this was the first hanging in Eastland County since 1894. The next day, on November 20th, Tom Jones lost the battle for his life. When he knew that his time had come, he told jailer, Edward P. Pack Kilborn. Pack, I stayed with you till the last, but I have to go now. With his eight-year-old son by his side, he leaned towards him and said, Be a good boy. Sheriff Tom Jones died a short time later. Three of the four Santa Claus robbers were now dead, leaving only Robert Hill to serve out his life sentence behind bars at the Wynn State Prison in Huntsville, Walker County, Texas. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison on March 24, 
1928. He escaped from prison three times during his stay, and although many newspaper accounts say that he was released from prison in the early 40s, and others say that he was released in the 50s, he actually escaped from the Wynn State Prison in January of 1963. He made it as far as El Paso, Texas, where he had planned on going to Mexico, and he was captured on January 19, 1963, on the International Bridge to Juarez, as he was attempting to cross the bridge. According to the Texas prison records, Robert Hill received a full pardon after serving 36 years in prison on August 17, 1964. Francis and Joseph Heron, just like any other family in the 1920s, was struggling to make ends meet. Against their better judgment, but just like so many other families did, they decided to rent out rooms in their home to earn extra income to help pay their bills. Unfortunately, they rented to the wrong people. They were terrorized by two men who, unbeknownst to them, were hardened criminals and bank robbers. In December of 1927, Josephine used her sewing skills to make a Santa suit that would ultimately change the history of Cisco, Eastland County, Texas forever. The Santa Claus robbery will always be one of the most famous bank robberies in the history of Texas. Hey y'all, that's it for this episode. I hope y'all enjoyed listening to the Santa Claus robbery, even though it was longer than most of my podcasts. Uh, I won't be doing a podcast next Thursday because it's Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, and I will see you after Christmas. I have written eight books about Wichita Falls and North Texas. I have four in a series called How Did They Die? Murdered in Northern Texas. One is from 1892 to 1926. One is 26 to 74. One is 54 to 2011. And then I have Murdered in the Line of Duty. So it's about officers around Texas who have been killed in the line of duty. I've also written four picture books. One is called Views of the Past Downtown Wichita Falls. One is Views of the Past Downtown Wichita Falls Volume 2. One is Views of the Past Wichita County, Texas. And the last one is called Way Back When, a picture book for kids. Y'all can get any of these books at Pickard's Universe at 10th and Indiana, Heritage Antique Mall at 15th and Lamar, and please shop locally if you live here, or you can order them on Amazon.com. Just type in my name and my books will pop up. Thank y'all.